Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path. We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age. So parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. Hey, Modern Education Movers. We've got a follow-up interview today with one of our launch guests, Mara Leinenberger. Now, Mara has a, a well-formed perspective on the state of education. An educator, actually, having spent 25 years in service as a public school educator, teacher trainer, and administrator. And she's also the international two-time bestseller author of Help My Child Hate School and the Micro School Builders Handbook. Now, Mara believes that each of us has been chosen to be here in this moment in time for a very specific reason that we are each on a mission that we choose for ourselves and that figuring out what we love, what we're good at and how we can be of service is really the engine that we need to fuel a lifetime of joyful learning. Now, Mira also believes having been in the school system for so long, that traditional public school often slows down or stifles that excitement for students. So she's now on a mission to create a global network of 100 micro schools in the next 20 years to harness education toward helping amazing children develop their highest potentials while making learning fun again, right? And we all want some more fun. Now, Mara currently lives in Harmony, Pennsylvania with her husband, Michael, while she travels far and wide directly supporting clients in her global micro school builders program. Mara, welcome to the show today. So good to have you. Thanks for having me. I had myself muted. If I sneeze, I apologize. We just got a new puppy and, uh, I am a, I'm technically, I'm allergic to dogs. Wow. That's a, this is a low allergy dog, but apparently uh my system has to regulate to that. So I I apologize. You must, you must really love dogs enough to, uh, to put up with anything that might get in the way. Yeah. So thanks for having me, Jerry. I really appreciate it. I appreciate having a chance to talk about micro schools today. Well, I'd love to just start by, I'm really curious. I mean, like you said, you've really kind of devoted your life into the education space. What, what really got you started down the path of, you know, focusing on education for kids? So, you know, like a lot of us, I went to college because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. My parents gave me the opportunity to study whatever I wanted. I started out as an English major, and then I got into information science. And at the same time, I was taking an intro to psych course. And as things kind of happen, I became really interested in psychology, ended up with a bachelor's in psychology. And about three quarters of the way through that, my college advisor said to me, so what are you going to do with that? And I had no idea. <laughs> so, like so many of us back then, right? Or yeah, even today. And, well, what was great was she said, well, here are the things that you traditionally can do. You really can't do a whole lot with a psychology degree. If you want to counsel, you need a master's in counseling psychology. I said, you know, I don't want to do that. So we looked at some options for some graduate work in psychology. I was really interested in social psychology. 
But at the same time, this professor said to me, you know, have you ever thought about becoming a teacher? I actually babysat her daughters and uh, she said, you are so good with my girls. What about becoming a teacher? And Jerry, like so many people will tell you, I've always wanted to be a teacher. I don't think that I didn't always have that in me, but I didn't recognize it or think like that would be a career path for me. I ended up going into a master's right out of college, Master of Arts in Teaching, which got me the credentials to teach in the state of Pennsylvania and earn my master's, which meant I was able to apply for my permanent licensure two years into into teaching. And I wound up at the time there were not jobs. I had to substitute for three years in the inner city schools in Pittsburgh before I was offered a contract, taught for 17 years in the inner city. But I wound up in one of Pittsburgh's magnet schools that was designed to help address segregation. Our um, neighborhoods are very segregated. So the traditional neighborhood model of school wasn't working, you know, because our uh, Pittsburgh is one of those immigrant cities that literally each of the neighborhoods has a sort of ethnic flair, which means that our African-American students are also all gathered together in neighborhoods. So the schools were very segregated just because of geography. The magnets were designed to desegregate the schools. So I wound up in one that started out as a traditional academy. So we think like uniforms, classic curriculum, all of that gets kids walking single file down the hall. The community actually advocated for that school to become an arts magnet. So I got all of this really incredible training in arts integration. I got to go to Lincoln Center in New York two summers and train in aesthetic education. What is that? I've never Uh, heard that. Aesthetic education... (laughs) That would be a whole show. <laughs> um, but in a nutshell, it's it's giving students an experience of a work of art together. And there's a way that you discuss the work of art. But that that looking at a work of art together and talking about it uh, begins to create dialogue um, and an understanding of one another that doesn't happen in other ways. And so in a lot of ways, it's like the the work of art is this separate thing from each of us and allows us to have a conversation that's mediated by the work of art versus, you know, our individual different opinions about things, if that makes any sense. That's yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it was a really great experience. But even in that school, right, I'm in this arts school where I had access to teaching artists who would come in. And, you know, when I was teaching second grade geography, we were learning about the 50 states and capitals. We conceived of a project to view a work. It's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City called uh, by an artist, Jasper Johns. There's, he's got this massive painting of the United States. So we showed this work of art and we spent about 45 minutes talking about it. The artist and I had had an idea that we wanted to create one ourselves, but we didn't let on that we knew that. We had the kids talk about this work of art by Johns. And, you know, eventually maybe 20 minutes in, a little hand went up and said, Ms. Leineberger, could we do that? Could we make a painting like Jasper Johns? And the artist and I just looked at each other and I said, what do you think? Could we do that? (laughs) And she said, I think we could do that. And from there, you know, because the kids were so engaged, each kid turned out we had 50 kids, literally 50 kids in the second grade. Every kid picked a state. Every kid researched their state. Every kid went and painted their state onto the map. And this map was installed in the school's auditorium where everybody gathered every morning. And it became this literal, like, and nice air quotes. I don't know. We're probably not going to have video on a podcast. It was an artifact with a capital A-R-T in, you know, plain view that everybody was looking at every day and learning U.S. geography because these kids had created a work of art that became a permanent installation in the school. 
So that sounds amazing. That's an idea of what what arts integration and uh, aesthetic education can do for you. But I schools at the time, you know, this was seven, eight. Well, no, this was probably like twenty years ago that I was working in in that setting. The curriculum and assessment, uh, no child left behind, had been implemented by the Bush presidency and. The constraints around what teachers had to do in order to demonstrate students were learning became increasingly constrictive, and they made it harder and harder to do those kinds of creative things uh, to have kids learn content and demonstrate that they had mastered the content. And so I wound up getting a doctorate in instructional technology. And as things sort of happened, there wasn't a really good way for me to use that in in my school district. So I went to work for an organization that uh, worked with 25 school districts. So that gave me a chance to broaden that. At the same time, I learned how to write grants and administered federal grants and so on. And then I went to work for a school district as uh, an administrator, director of staff development, technology integration, data and assessment, new teacher induction, federal programs, all this stuff rolled into one. And at the end of that first year. I was going to say, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a shift, right? From being in the classroom with, you know, a bunch of grade twos to now managing a whole school board. Well, I did, I did four and a half years in this, in this uh, position. And it's called an intermediate unit working with 25 school districts. So that sort of eased me out of the classroom. I will tell you, the first six months were hard. You know, having a class, always having a class of students to having an office and a secretary. And working with just adults was a little bit of a shift. But uh, by the time I got to the district level work, I was pretty used to that. And, and really, my, my student nowadays is actually a teacher. I teach grad courses for a college here in Pennsylvania. And I run my own business, Micro School Builders. So, you know, I eased out of it. I still work with kids a lot. Uh, my clients who have schools... Uh, I work with their students once a week. We do inquiry-based learning together remotely because the schools are all over the U.S. at the moment. And uh, But it lets us do things that we can't do any other way. These kids would never meet each other. You know, we've got some kids in Minnesota, Maryland, Florida at the moment in the inquiry class. And, you know, they would never meet each other. And they're working on a project to support students in Ladakh, Northern India. So again, like, that would never happen without technology. So it's an exciting time. For sure. Well, I'd, I'd love to kind of connect the dots then between, between now and, and where we left off with you being like an administrator. So, so what you, you obviously you had a lot invested in kind of the traditional school model. Then at some point something shifted and now you're to micro schools and, and all that. So what caused that, that shift for you to, to kind of give up that path that you were on and, and go in a, really a, a really different direction. I think I, you know, it, hindsight's fantastic. Reflection is, is perfect because you can look back and see like, why did I do that? You know, why did I follow the pathway? And I will tell you when I, I, at the end of my career in the big system of education, which was about seven and a half years ago, my position was cut to make way for a new superintendent coming in and the district required additional funds for her salary. So they eliminated my position. You know, oh, I, had nice. been, I had been a tenured teacher with, I'm trying to think, yeah, I was tenured in the, in the, when I was in the city schools and I was at the top of the pay scale and the chances of me losing my job would have been very slim. Moving it into administration, that's a whole new ball of wax. And I came into that position as low man on the totem pole. So it was, you know, it was easy for the district to eliminate the position, to consolidate, you know, 
responsibilities. That was part of it. But I will tell you, my, my looking for different pathways actually came before that. I was probably 10 years into teaching in, in this arts magnet school. And even then, I could feel the walls closing in around me. I can remember the day that my principal announced No Child Left Behind and this, this goal of 100% proficiency by the year 2020. I think that's what it was. It does, you know, that, that How ironic that is, right? 2020. I'm sorry, not 2020. It was, it was by the year 2000, excuse me. Okay. It, and it was, I remember thinking, that's insane. Like, every kid is different. Every child progresses differently. How can we hold every single student to being completely proficient on the same thing in, on, you know, in the same year span? And I remember in that staff meeting laughing. And while everybody's like sitting there really seriously, and I think they probably thought I was crazy, but you know, I could see the lunacy of that. And that, you know, I don't think standards are a bad thing, but holding everybody to the same level of proficiency at exactly the same time, that is, that's a one size fits all approach. So I think back then I started thinking about what am I going to do? I had a colleague say to me, you would be a great principal. So I looked at what that job would entail and what the training would entail. And I decided I didn't want to do that. And then I found out about, you know, I decided to use my technology skills. I was really, I was running the school's computer lab. I was mentoring my colleagues in the use of technology and best practices there. And so I went and got a doctorate in that so that I could begin to do that work. When I couldn't put that to use in my school district, I went and put it to use in another, in, in the, at the intermediate unit, which then gave me this opportunity to affect a larger pool of people, 20, you know, administrators from 25 districts. And in my mind, that was the way that I would make, help make change within the system. I knew that we needed to look at teaching and learning differently, that just assessing academic achievement was not enough. Uh, So many kids learn differently. You know, an academic achievement is not a good measure of how well they are doing or how much they have learned. You know, the, the arts work let me see that many kids could demonstrate their mastery of content in other ways. So when I hey, Mara, went off, yeah, I would love for you to say that one point again, just, just before yeah. that, about, about measuring students and, and proficiency. I would love just, just for people just to let that sink in again, if you could just state that. Yeah, that's that sentence well, I mean, one more I think time. We got it wrong, Jerry. So, really true. And I can remember that as a as a teacher, I was in a grad class, and when I realized this the first time, and it's funny that I did not get this until I was in a graduate course. That you know, teaching teaching is this act of helping a learner to learn something that you either want them to learn or that they're interested in, and we're looking for mastery or not mastery, so that we know how to better um, direct the next learning activity. Assessment is actually a measure of how much a student has learned to help an educator then choose the next course of action. But assessment has, in our country, here in the U.S., it has, there has become this obsession with assessment as this measure of worth of a child. And, and it's just ridiculous, Jerry. It is not. You know, assessment, a kid's A's on a report card do not mean that that child is better than the child with B's or C's or D's or E's. It just means they're better test takers. You know, and so I, I found myself increasingly stressed by that. You know, the walls that were closing in were that the focus was on that versus this creative, aesthetic, educational st- 
stuff that I had been trained to do. You know, so there was this internal struggle against wanting to let kids have fun, be creative, and to professionally watch to see how are they growing? How can I help them? You know, who needs a little bit more here and who needs a little bit less there? I couldn't do that because the curriculum became so strict, so rigid. And there's this thing that teachers use called scope and sequence, which is, you know, this is when you teach this on this particular day. Right, right. Uh, and you have to get all of this covered. It, 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 I couldn't understand that. And I needed to do something different. So let's, yeah, let's take way back. So now you see your position was in hindsight, mercifully cut. And, and now you've kind of gone down this path of micro schools. I mean, I'm sure there was, there was a, a journey there to, to get to that point, but what, what, uh, what made you choose? I mean, all the different options you had, and clearly you, you, you had a lot of different things you could do. What, what made you choose micro schools? And, and for those who are listening, maybe explain what is a, a micro school? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do it backwards. I'll tell you a micro school. If you were to look it up on Wikipedia, micro school is def defined there. And I will say to your listeners, it's it's a term that is being defined each and every day. It's new. It's only been around for about 10 years. If you went to Wikipedia, it would say a school that has less than 150 kids, focuses more on self-directed learning, a lot of times has multi-age group groupings of kids, has flexibility in the learning schedule can cost less than a private school. So it has, you know, in my mind, what micro schools are is they take all of the best practices that teachers are taught. So things like self-directed learning or inquiry-based learning or differentiating the instruction for each child based on their, you know, skill sets, their abilities, their strengths, their weaknesses. It takes all of those things. It's it's basically a a re-envisioning of the one-room schoolhouse using all of the best practices and technologies we have available to us today. They're generally based in a community and they're very responsive, uh, responsive to the needs and the desires of the community in which they are being opened. How did I get to wanting to do that through inquiry? I mean, it's, it's my favorite mode of learning. It's something that I do personally. So when I lost my job, I thought, what can I do? The first thing I did was outsource my technology skills. I went and found some private business clients who needed help with their technologies and their marketing and taught them how to do that. I then found a college or actually it was a professional development company for teachers who were doing technology learning pieces. And because I had a doctorate in instructional technology, they were excited to have me come on board. I started writing courses for them. Those have now become graduate level courses offered by a college here in PA, and I'm technically considered adjunct faculty at the college. That has suited me really well, Jerry, because I, you know, I thought I'd like to teach higher ed. I love working with adult learners, but I wasn't really that interested in going and getting a faculty job where I would have office hours and committees and a lot of the same kind of overhead. Yeah. yeah. Overhead and constraint and and confines to what I was doing with my students that I had had in K-12 education. So you know, where a lot of people don't like being an adjunct, I'm thrilled. I don't get paid nearly what I'm worth, but I get the freedom to teach the way that I believe is, is of the best benefit for my adult learners. Well, and, and that's really priceless in itself, right? It is. Yeah. It is. I love my work. You know, at the end of the day, it would be nice to be making more money, but I'm happy. I enjoy the work. My students are engaged. They're learning a lot. I'm 
giving them experiences of inquiry and learning through actually having them learn that way. What I have found is that most teachers can conceptualize the idea of what inquiry is like, but they can't translate that to their students because they've never actually experienced it themselves. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. Just, just curious, Mara, what, 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 um, if one was to wander into a a micro school by accident, what, what would they typically see in, in over the course of a day? You know, it's going to be totally different. Um, you know, you asked me how I got to that. I started as I was building that technology business, I started having dreams at night about one room schoolhouses. So I actually started investigating was that, did they actually exist or were they a relic? And in a lot of cases, they're still a relic. You know, there's lots of one room schoolhouse buildings that have been turned into museums. Actually, my in my community, the one room schoolhouse is now a community center. And next week, which is the elections here in the US, I will go and vote in a one room schoolhouse, which that's, I think that's is super fascinating. Cool. They do exist. I went and visited some. I actually went and taught in one on an island off the coast of Maine for a while. And that experience of teaching in the one room schoolhouse taught me all of what to do and what not to do and gave me the notion of how to build my business, the micro school building business. So what would you see if you walk in? It's really going to depend. It's like it, it all depends on who in the community has said we want something different and uh, more student-centered for our kids. Something smaller, gentler, kinder. Uh, we want. So, in some cases, uh, I could tell you about some of my clients. I have one in. Minnesota. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm just trying to like paint a picture for for parents out there. You know, trying to wrap their heads around uh, mm-hmm. you know, a micro school. Mm-hmm. How how it might be different. Yeah. So I have a client in Minnesota who she and her husband just purchased a freestanding house. That's the micro school. She was running it in the basement of their home for the last three years, but. They have 25 students. They have uh, four staff members. So she runs the one-room schoolhouse part of it. Uh, there's also a pre-K, K, a kindergarten classroom. There's five kids in that group, and there's like 20-some in the one-room schoolhouse group. Uh, in the mornings, they take a walk together. They, have, they circle up, and they do some meditation. They talk about what their day's going to look like and what they're working on. Each of the kids does some technology-based math and reading uh, that is adaptive. So those kids are, you know, getting specifically exactly what they want. And with the age ranges of like eight years old to 14 years old, the skill sets are very different in those two content areas. But then they all come together for a whole group instruction of on a topic that the kids have chosen. So like, for instance, last year, they wanted to learn about Egypt. So the teacher, the owner of that school, Put together some presentations for them and she's teaching those kids how to listen and take notes uh, she that's one of the things that the families wanted was that their kids were learning some of the classic instructional pieces so that they would be well prepared for college if if they choose to do that but then one of the cool things that happens is they'll put together that learning that they're doing as a group they'll create some artifacts of that so the younger kids might draw pictures and the older kids might write a book or do a presentation, but the whole school went on a field trip to Chicago from Minnesota. They flew together and went to the big museum in in Chicago that has all of the Egyptian artifacts to learn more and celebrate their learning. And then in that school in the afternoons, each kid has something that's called a passion project. That is, the kid has decided something that they want to explore that they're interested in, and then the educator's job is to facilitate help the kids explore those topics. 
uh, to document their learning and to be able to present at the end of that study some evidence that they have learned something. Oh, really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. So, yeah. So if a parent's kind of, it sounds kind of interesting. I'm sure. Well, that's, and that's only one example. I mean, they look different. You know, I have a client who is using more of a democratic model, which means the students are making choices for their learning all day, every day. I have another client who has profoundly gifted kids. So those kids are being mentored by faculty from a local university. The, the university professors are presenting to the kids and then the kids are deciding that they want to explore a topic with the faculty to depth. So, you know, it, it, it depends on the kids who show up, what the families and the community want, how they want to see that day structured, and then the skill sets of the educator to craft an environment and a, a process, a culture within that school that suits everybody. Fascinating. So it sounds like for micro schools, it's really important that families who are involved in that want to be actively engaged in co-creating and, and helping to shape the, the culture and, and the, the focus of the school. Would you say that that's, that's an important aspect for any family considering a micro school? On the way, the way that I do it, the way that my clients do it, yes. Now, there are some companies out there. There are several different uh, folks who have created a school that has a model that's, that people really like. There's the Acton Academy model. They think they've got 200 schools open globally. There's the Liberated Learners Network model. There's the Prendis schools. You know, so there are, there are models, you know, but then your, your listeners will probably know about Waldorf schools. Montessori schools. Uh, they might know about Sudbury schools and democratic schools. So there are some models that have been created that are being replicated in, as micro schools. And then there are people like the clients that I like to serve who are uh, creating something completely bespoke. That's probably the best word to describe it. It's a bespoke school for, for their community and themselves. So they're they're not only building a school that the kids will love in the community and, and that the community will want, but they're building the school of like their dream. It's their dream school too. It's a place that they love to go to every day and to work with kids. How can parents um, parents know that that this is say the right the right choice for their their family a micro school? The best thing you can do is you know you want to read about the micro schools, but you need to go visit. You know most of the micro schools that I work with do shadow days or free um, visitation days. They'll let your child come in and actually try out the school. You know, the school's going to be working with you in the same way in reverse. They're going to be looking to see if if your child is a good fit for the community of learners that are there. And if there's not a good fit, either on, you know, the school's part or your part, they're going to help you to find another school in the community that might fit better. But the best way to, to find out is to go try and to ask, you know, it, 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 I don't know what everybody's doing, but I know my clients all offer at least a, one free day where you can come in. And your child can actually you know, be there as a learner to see what it's like and to see if it's a good fit. But you want to set up an appointment to talk to the school owner and to find out all you can about what the day is like, who the school is for, how you're going to know your child is doing well. Yeah, that's, that's a question that was also popping up in my mind as you thinking back to what you said about this, this super strong focus on assessment in traditional schools, you know, micro school setting, you know, how, how, how do we sort of check in and and evaluate and, and sense how, how things are going. 
Yeah, it's funny that you, you're, it's not funny. It, 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 it's it, the coincidence that you're asking it today, this morning, earlier, before, the, before we're chatting. Um, I was talking to four educators from India who were trying to wrap their heads around opening a micro school in their community. And this was their same question. They said, what curriculum should we use and, and what kind of tests should we use? And I said, you know, there are, there are homeschool curriculums out there that can be used and there are technology-based pieces of learning that can be used. You know, I talked about my client in Minnesota who uses the adaptive software. Those kind of things will, will tell you how well a student did. But one of the things I think we've lost in education is the professional experience and knowledge of an educator to observe and then report back on how well a child's doing. I mean, when we go to the doctor's office, part of what they do is they'll maybe order up some medical tests, but a big part of what they do is ask questions and uh, observe what's going on with us to make a diagnosis. Teachers used to do that all the time, right? They would observe their students. They might take anecdotal notes or, you know, complete a checklist. But, you know, any teacher worth their salt actually knows how their students are doing. You know, they know who's gotten something and they know who hasn't just based on the communication that they're having with the child and the kind of things that the child is working on, focusing on and producing. So in micro schools, you'll typically see the the educator is communicating with families on a daily basis one-to-one when the kids are dropped off and picked up. That's one of the benefits of micro schools. They're so small that there's time for the teacher and the parent to talk several times a week. So there's a lot of verbal communication going on. I have one of my school owners, she does something, she keeps kind of a visual map all day. She carries a clipboard around. Now her students completely direct their learning and they're outside they're coming across a leaf or a plant or an animal, and then they're talking about what they know. And they're asking questions of her of what she knows. And when she doesn't know, then they're going and looking and researching. She's drawing a concept map of everything that they talk about and everything that they're learning as a group. And her parents have access to that and can see that on a daily basis, what the entire group of children have been focused on and learning. And she can talk with the, with the parents individually about their child in in that process, what parts they were curious about. But it's less about saying, did I master this content? And it's more about saying, did I develop the skills as an independent learner to have an idea, to have a question, to have a thought, and then follow that and to, to learn the skills of sound research and learning how to find reliable quality resources to, you know, learn the thing that I want to know how to do or understand and and can i develop a passion that will carry me through a lifetime versus just get me through graduation i see so many kids today just very focused on graduating from high school yeah yeah just putting in the time totally get it and yeah what, that, what do i have to do to get to pass your course versus what do you say, what are the big ideas and how does that actually fit into my life is there any real purpose or use for it in the things that I'm interested in learning about? And that's really what we need in, in, our, in our world right now. And I know you have a, a really long-term view about education and, and making an impact in the world. It's like There's a lot of difficult problems out there and we need, we need a society that's active, alive, engaged, can cr- think critically in order to really move, move the needle rather than just people who are you know, looking forward to the weekend, right? And, and uh, putting on uh, 
the latest sports uh, sports game. Yeah. Well, you said, I mean, I have a long-term goal. I, originally, I set that goal of 100 schools in the next 20 years. I've shortened it to 10 years. I should probably change that in my bio. But well, That's good, because I was thinking, you know, yeah, there's, you, you're, there's more going on here than, 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 than that. So, Well, but as far as the change of the big system of education goes, the, the reason that I decided to focus on micro schools was because I believed that change within the system was, would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Now, with the COVID crisis, I think more people are aware that that system has some big flaws. You know, we're seeing the fact that we, we don't have physical space to have kids gathered safely, you know, which our micro schools can do, by the way. And because most of our micro schools function as pandemic pods, so the families are limiting their exposure to just the families of the, the, the kids in the school. So they're, you know, containing, they're, they're keeping any contagion out. School, big school systems can't do that. They don't have the money, the budget, the capacity, the numbers of teachers. So much of the budget in a school district goes for administration, transportation, food preparation, maintenance and, and ongoing upkeep and, and the utilities for these large buildings. Our micro school owners, their overhead is much lower because they don't have all of the administrative staff and supports. And some would say that that's a problem because there's not oversight. But, you know, in my mind, the oversight is the families that are enrolling their kids in the school because they are the client, they are the customer. I think that my, my thought was if we try this more entrepreneurial version of school, we can demonstrate all of the best practices and show that they, what works. And then the big systems of school will fall in line and say, we're going to adopt those things. Um, I look at it as like, 30, 40 years ago, yogis came to the United States for the first time and people in big metropolitan areas found out about yoga. But now we have yoga studios all over the U.S. in pretty much every little town. I yes. think yeah, that's, that's a great, great analogy for sure. Yeah. Well, that or the, um, you know, like the slow foods movement, the sort of more farm to table movement as far as food goes and, you know, our more boutique restaurants versus big chain restaurants. I think that, you know, micro schools are more like the specialty taco restaurant in your community that's owned by someone who's been to Mexico and really learned how to make tacos and has sourced all of the produce locally. Your micro school's more like that. It's bespoke and there's room for all of it, right? There are people who want the fast food and there are people who want the slow food and there are people who want the big system of education and there are people who want a slower gentler kinder version which i think is the micro school how how expensive is it to attend a typical micro school and for you know for i know just listening to your history you know we spend a lot of time in the sort of inner school areas in pittsburgh and whatnot that you know it's really important for you for for some equality to, to access and things how how is micro schools um helping or addressing that and yeah so like my two questions is kind of what's yeah. the cost what's the cost like and how do we make it accessible to to more more students so typically if you were to, again if you went back to wikipedia and you looked they the commentary there is that most micro schools are trying to make themselves more affordable than a traditional private school so under ten thousand dollars but you know, when I work with my clients, part of what I'm doing, and most of my clients are educators, and part of the problem with education, I think right now, is that we don't understand the work, the value of the work that a teacher does. 
what most people see is that there's a contract, that there's this salary, and that teachers work nine months and they get three months off. And, and that really isn't the case. Teachers are working many, many more hours and they're putting in their own money to buy materials and they spend their summers doing professional development and planning for the new school year, you know, all in service to the kids. So part of what I'm doing with my clients is helping them to shift their perspective from being an employee to being the employer to being the entrepreneur. So we take a look at what is the cost of an education in a community? So we look at all of the schools that are there and what their either their tuition is or what their cost basis is. So for instance, here in Harmony, the big school district spends about $15,000 a year to educate a student. So it's not unreasonable to charge $15,000 a year to educate a student. If you can demonstrate to a parent that there's real value in it, that what you are doing exceeds what you're technically getting, quote unquote, for free from that public school district. So we, you know, my, my clients have to learn about value statements and have to actually take a long, hard look at everything that they do that is more focused on the child as the most important thing in education. I think that's, Jerry, that's one of the biggest problems in education right now is this, this hyper focus on testing and assessment has left the child out of the equation. And really, that's the only thing that should, that should be the first thing that we think of. And first and foremost is, what, who is this child and, and what do they want to learn and how can I help them to grow? How can I help them to become whomever they want to be? That's a really great question to ask for sure. And Well, you don't answer that question in one day. You, no. you know, the relationship that you build with the child to say, I'm, you know, I'm an adult. I love working with children and I want to help you to grow into the person that you dream of being. You know, whatever you want to try on, whatever you want to do. I also, I take it a step further and I say, I want to help you to become a really valuable contributing member of society that you're, my husband says, you need to be worth more than you cost to keep. And I love that. It's a really short statement that helps me think about, is the thing I'm doing creating value in the world, not just for myself and my family, but for my community and for the planet in general. So microschools can focus on that kind of a big idea of learning in a way that that promotes that kind of work and service to the planet. I'm sure there's a, a number of people listening to this podcast who are, say, are thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I could run a micro school, right? So who, who would you say is kind of the ideal person to run a, a micro school from your experience? Have you seen the, um, and you can, you, you and your viewers can look this up. There's a chart, it's called the diffusion of innovation chart. So it basically looks like a bell curve, traditional assessment bell curve. And it shows, you know, that anytime you want to do something new, that the very far tail end at the beginning is people that they call, I think it's, they call them innovators. Right. Yeah. Um, And there's the early adopters. And then there's sort of this big chunk in the middle. And then there's the laggards. And then there's the people who really don't want to make the change at all. If you're going to start a micro school, you have to be looking for the innovators. So you have to be an innovator yourself. You have to be that person who says, you know, there are a lot of good things going on in school, but there are a lot of things that are not. There are a whole bunch of kids who need something different. And I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about how I can make a difference for kids. And if I had a chance to work with kids and help them become the person they want to be, like that would fulfill me for a lifetime. So it has to be that kind of a burning desire. 
you know, every one of my clients comes with an idea for how they want their school to, to be and how they want it to run. And part of that is what would make them happy. And then we work on making sure that that's actually what the community wants and needs. But as far as opening a micro school, you have to be looking for families that are on that innovator at that innovator part of that diffusion of innovation curve as well, or maybe early adopters. But there is a whole bulk of people out there in the world who still think that traditional education is okay. Usually it's the thought is, I turned out okay, so like it'll be fine for my kid, or I had to do that, so now my kid has to do that. Those are not going to be your clients. Well, the beauty, yeah, the beauty is like a micro school is just that it's micro. So it's not like you have to be something to cater to the masses. You can really cater to, to those, those families. So, well, I mean, I have a client in uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix area who, you know, is opening a school out on a farm and, you know, she's very worried about recruiting families in, and we're working on her marketing strategy to get that in place so that she's communicating to those early innovators that she has the solution that they're looking for. Or maybe that she has a solution that they didn't even know they needed, but there's language in there that says, you know, this is for your kid. Like, this is your kid's dream school. And we talked about it and I said, you need 10 kids. There's, I don't know how many people are in Phoenix, half a million people, maybe, maybe more. Like out of a half a million people, I think there are going to be 10 families who will raise their hand and say, I want this for my child. So that is the beauty of it, right? You build your budget to have the school be small, to be affordable and and to have real value for your families. And then you just need to find a few people who agree with that. It isn't really all that hard. I know we've just got a, a few more minutes for you to go. So I just want to ask you um, just one more question. Mm-hmm. And I know from an earlier conversation that um, for you, make, making a lasting impact for generations to come is is one of those guiding principles for you. And I'd really love to uh, to know from you, like, what is that lasting impact that you really want to create in the world through, through everything you're doing right now? You know, I want to, I don't know that I can do it in my lifetime that I can help make real change in the big systems of education where we can put the child back at the center again. But I know I can do it with a few schools and I know I already am doing it. I have four schools and two more coming on board next week. So we'll have six schools networked together all across the U.S. and Part of what I'm doing with that is recreating the idea of a school district so that it's not just kids who are all in one community in a local vicinity that get to connect and collaborate and share resources, but that it's it's a global endeavor and that we're working on global projects. So we're we're thinking locally, we're acting locally, but we're also connected globally. You know, I think if I can get these hundred schools up and connected in the next 10 years then my work is done. Like then the next person will come along who will take the helm of that work. And as that continues to grow, I think school districts will either, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, Nostradamus or any kind of a prognosticator of that kind. I don't know whether the big system of education will fully collapse or whether we can change it, but I, I don't think it really matters if we're building something viable. That's an alternative either way. You know, schools will either change or they will collapse and then the people will move into micro schools. Right. So we're just we're creating the thing. It's like there's a there's a video out there for some technology company where the, they are they show people building an airplane in the sky with people flying. Right. Yeah. I use that analogy a lot. Yeah. We are kind of doing that. You know, we're building 
something new, something different, something kinder, gentler, slower, smaller. The people who want to do that are joining us. And I think we will be like yoga in 20 or 30 years from now. And, you know, hopefully I'll be retired and I'll get to watch this <laughs> and see it happen. There will be micro schools on every, in every small town and village. They will be connected together either because they've chosen a model and they're all, you know, like the Acton Academies or they're part of micro school builders and everybody's got this very bespoke school and they're connected together. But what will happen is that in every community, families will have choices. Like they will be able to say, I want the free education from the public school and the public schools will have adopted many of the best practices. Or I want the bespoke micro school and I will pay for it. You know, maybe we'll be lucky in that like big public school will adopt a micro school mentality and you won't have to choose. But until then, you know, we'll build alternatives. Well, thanks, Amara, so much for the incredible work that you're doing, making a, a huge impact in the world and so sorely needed. We'll have links in the show notes to you can get in touch with, with Mara if you're interested in perhaps having your child uh, attend a micro school or perhaps maybe like to start one yourself. You can be able to carry on that conversation. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Mara. Thank you, Jerry. <laughs>